0: This is a Reconstruction Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF form. The Greatness of the Great Commission, Christian Enterprise in a Fallen World, written by Kenneth L. Gentry, Jr., published in 1990 by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, narrated by Joseph Spurgeon. Part two Configuration Chapter three The Declaration of Sovereignty. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated, and when they saw him they worshipped him. Matthew twenty eight sixteen through seventeen. The first point of the covenant model is the establishment of the sovereignty of the covenant maker. As we approach the Great Commission from a covenantal perspective, we discover that its contextual setting clearly points to its sovereign disposition in a number of ways. As we begin our study of the matter, we must recognize that the books of Scripture were written by real, flesh-and-blood historical men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the books were given in particular, concrete, historical contexts. Second Peter 1.21 The Scriptures did not fall from heaven as a book of mysteries. Consequently, At least a general understanding of the historical and geographical context of any given passage is helpful to its fuller and more accurate apprehension. In addition to being aware of the historical and geographical context of any given passage, it is often helpful to understand something of the literary structure of the particular book of scripture in which it is found. This is especially true of the Gospels, which represent a new literary genre that is neither biography nor theology. The literary genre is Gospel as New Testament theologian Donald B. Guthrie has noted of the Gospels. Whereas they are historical in form, their purpose was something more than historical. It is not, in fact, an accident that they were called Gospels at an early period in Christian history. There were no parallels to the Gospel form which served as a pattern for the earliest writers. The Gospels were written by common men who organized the material according to a thought-out structure, plan, and purpose, Luke 1, 1 1-4. So something of the literary structure of Matthew will also be helpful in opening us to the sovereignty of the Covenantal Great Commission. Let us consider then the place, time, and literary setting of the commission. As we turn to the geographical matter, we will note the covenantal significance of both the region and the topography of the place where the commission was given. The region was in Galilee. The topographical setting was on a mountain. The Gospels teach us that Christ's disciples were instructed by Him to go to a certain specified place in Galilee to meet Him after the resurrection, and of course the Matthew 28:16 reference is from the very context of the Great Commission. It is interesting that Christ instructs His disciples to meet Him in Galilee. Of course, Christ lived there in His youth, called His disciples in Galilee, and performed much of His ministry there. Yet the fact that He would prearrange a post-resurrection appearance with His disciples in Galilee in order to commission them as he does, is instructive. This change of locale is noteworthy, in that they were already in Jerusalem, the heart of Israel and Judea, and will very soon to return there to await the Pentecostal empowerment for their mission. Why were they now instructed to take the trip to Galilee? Galilee was an area in Israel that contained a mixed Jew and Gentile population from the earliest times. Having been only inadequately conquered and settled by the Jews during the original conquest of the Promised Land, Judges 1.33. In addition, during the later Assyrian conflict, the Jews of the area were carried off into captivity, leaving many Gentiles as the inhabitants of the land, Second Kings 15.29. For these reasons, Upper Galilee was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Also for these reasons, Galileans were noted for their peculiar mixed accent, and were looked down upon by the Jews in the southern, more pure regions. Interestingly, Matthew is the only gospel that mentions Christ's early command for the disciples to avoid the Gentiles in their ministry, refers to Jerusalem as the holy city, and records Christ being called the King of the Jews prior to Pilate's cross inscription. Yet three times at the end of this gospel, Matthew mentions that Christ was to meet his disciples in Galilee, well away from Jerusalem and well into the area of mixed Jew and Gentile inhabitants. In addition to this information, We should note that just prior to the Great Commission is mentioned the Jewish bribe and the lie regarding the whereabouts of Christ's body. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep, and they took the money and did as they had been instructed, and this story was widely spread among the Jews, and is to this day. Upon mention of this cover-up by the Jews in Jerusalem, Christ appears in Galilee to give His commission to disciple the nations. Matthew twenty eight sixteen and nineteen The gospel, as we will see, was designed to promote Christ's sovereignty over the entire world not just the Jews. Thus, even the place of its giving anticipates this. For in light of Matthew four fifteen, it is likely that Galilee here represents all peoples in verse nineteen. That the disciples went to the mountain which Jesus had designated, seems also to be for some particular purpose. Christ's employment of mountains for instructional effect is familiar enough. For instance, the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, and the Ascension were from a mountain, the Mount of Olives. Mountains are significant in Scripture as symbols of sovereignty, majesty, exaltation, and power. As such, they often stand for kingdoms, as several of the verses in the preceding note suggest. It was on a mountain that Christ commissioned His disciples to take the gospel to the nations. The majestic effect of this commissioning from a mountain will be dealt with in detail later in chapter 4. There I will focus on the implications of the hierarchical authority of the commission. At this point, I merely point out the appropriateness of the majestic commissioning of the disciples from a mountain for symbolizing his sovereign transcendence in this covenantal transaction. The idea is captured well by Linsky. On mountain heights, heaven and earth, as it were, meet, and here the glorified Savior spoke of his power in heaven and on earth with the vast expanse of the sky above him and the great panorama of the earth spread beneath him jesus stands in his exaltation and in his glory a striking vision indeed this is why the disciples worshiped him there matthew 28:17 the commission was granted by the resurrected savior who had finished john 19:30 the work of redemption which his father gave him to do john 17:4 Having conquered sin, Romans 3:23 through 26, Satan, Colossians 2:15, and death, Acts 2:24 and 31, Christ arose victoriously from the tomb as a conquering king to commission his disciples with the sovereign authority to take this message to all nations. In the complex of events connecting the resurrection and the great commission, we witness the investiture of Christ as sovereign. It was particularly at the resurrection that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to Paul in Romans 1.4. That verse reads, He was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Actually, the word translated declared in most translations of Romans 1.4 is never translated thus elsewhere. The word is generally understood to mean determine, appoint, ordain. As Murray notes, there is neither need nor warrant to resort to any other rendering than that provided by the other New Testament instances, namely that Christ was appointed or constituted Son of God with power, and points therefore to an investiture which had an historical beginning parallel to the historical beginning mentioned in Romans 1-3. Of course, Christ was not appointed the Son of God, but on this recommended reading, Romans 1-4 does not suggest that. It says he was appointed Son of God with power. The very point of Romans 1 is that Christ came in history as the seed of David, Romans one three, not that he dwelt in eternity as the Son of God. Thus, at the resurrection, Christ was instated in a position of sovereignty and invested with power, an event which in respect of investiture with power surpassed everything that could previously be ascribed to him in his incarnate state. Returning to Matthew 28.18, we should note that a literal rendering of the verse reads, "And having come near... Jesus spake to them, saying, Given to me was all authority. Both the position and the tense of the word given should be noted. In Greek, words thrown to the front of a sentence are generally emphasized, as given is here in Christ's statement. Not only is giving emphasized as being particularly significant, but according to the Greek verb tense, his being given authority was at some point in past time. The point at which the grant of authority occurred was obviously at the resurrection according not only to the clear implication of the text before us, but also to the confirmation in Romans 1.4, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection, followed shortly by the ascension, established Christ as King and enthroned Him as such. We should note that Philippians 2.8-9 also uses the same tense to point to the resurrection as that time when Christ was bestowed authority. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. For this reason, J.P. Lange has designated the Great Commission a second transfiguration. As Calvin wrote of the Lord's statement in Matthew 28.18, we must note, His authority was not openly displayed until he arose from the dead. Only then did he advance aloft wearing the insignia of Supreme King. From this time forth, we cease to hear as familiar, I can do nothing of myself. For now, all authority is rightfully his. Furthermore, this grant of kingly authority was prophesied in Psalm 2, 6, and 7. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. In Acts, this passage from Psalm 2 was clearly applied to the resurrection of Christ. Acts 13:33 through 34 reads, God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay. Though not referring to Psalm 2, Acts 2:30 2, 30 through 31 agrees that the resurrection of Christ was to kingly authority. And so, because David was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Then Peter, making reference to Psalm 110, adds, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Acts 2, 34-35 Turning back to Matthew 28, 18, We should note that Christ's statement indicates something new has occurred as the result of the completion of his redemptive work at his resurrection from the grave. He has now been given all authority. The wondrous significance of this will be demonstrated below. Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, and his great commission exhibits his manifold ministry to his people. Thus, in this and the following chapter, we will see that he speaks as the great king who rules over his vast kingdom. And that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew twenty eight eighteen. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation nineteen sixteen. In chapter five, we will see how the Great Commission is also a prophetic commission. As the great prophet, Christ declares the will of God for all the world by teaching men to observe all that I commanded. Matthew twenty eight twenty. In chapter six, the priestly aspect of the commission will become evident. As the great high priest, he secures the worshipful oaths of those over whom it holds sway, and his command to baptize the nations (Matthew 28:19). The beautiful structure of Matthew's gospel merits our attention as we consider the great commission. Blair comments regarding Matthew 28:18. Here, many of the emphases of the book are caught up. Cook concurs. With this sublime utterance, Saint Matthew winds up his gospel, throughout which he has kept the principles which are thus enunciated distinctly before our minds. I would go a step further and note that what we read in the closing words of Matthew's gospel in the closing days of Christ's ministry has already been anticipated in the opening words of the gospel and of Christ's earthly life and the beginning of his ministry. Thus, the very opening chapters of Matthew seem to expect a conclusion we get in the Great Commission. Let me just briefly draw out the parallels. They do not seem to be merely coincidental. They speak of a king who comes, Matthew's chapter 1-4, through 4, and receives sovereignty, Matthew 28, over a kingdom. 1. Jesus as Emmanuel In the birth announcement to Joseph, we have the angelic declaration of the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 in Jesus' birth. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means, God with us. Matthew 1.23 God with us has come. In the conclusion of Matthew and in the Great Commission, we have the same theme. And lo, I am with you always. Matthew 28.20 God with us remains. 2. The royalty of Jesus In Matthew 1.1, the royal genealogy of Christ is pushed forward. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here, not only do we have Christ's human name, Jesus, coupled with his messianic name, Christ, but with the royal title, Son of David, a familiar messianic description in Matthew. Thus, the genealogy presented in Matthew 1.1-17 1, 1 is not an appendix, but is closely connected with the substance of the entire chapter, in a broader sense with the contents of the entire book. In Matthew 28.18, Christ comes to his disciples in the exercise of his recently secured royal authority. All authority is given me in heaven and on earth. A fitting conclusion to a work opening with a royal genealogy. 3. Gentiles and the King In Matthew 2, 1, we read of Gentile magi coming from the east, in search of Christ, they seek him who has been born King of the jews matthew two two in matthew twenty eight nineteen we read of the Sovereign King with all authority in heaven and earth, sending his disciples in search of the Gentiles. Go make disciples of all the nations in Matthew two we read of a king's attempt at destruction of the young Jesus toward the beginning of his earthly sojourn. Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him matthew two thirteen the Great Commission was given after the final attempt at destruction of Christ by means of the crucifixion, Matthew 27, verse 33, toward the end of his earthly ministry. Israel replaced by the nations. In Matthew 3, 9-11, through John Baptist warns the Jews in Judea who were so proud of their Abrahamic descent that the axe is already laid at the root of the trees and that there was coming a fiery destruction of Jerusalem. In the Great Commission, Christ, the true son of Abraham, while in Galilee, verse sixteen, after the Jews lied about his resurrection, verse twelve through fifteen, commands his followers to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Six geographical juxtaposition. In Matthew three, Christ's first public appearance opens with these words. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan. Matthew three thirteen. His movement was from Galilee to Judea. Matthew three one. In the closing of Matthew and in his ministry as recorded there, Christ's movement is the opposite. He moves from Jerusalem in Judea to Galilee. Matthew twenty eight, verse one, verses six and seven, verse ten and verse sixteen. Number seven, baptismal ritual. As Christ's public presentation opens in Matthew, we read, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. Matthew three thirteen. In the closing of Christ's ministry in Matthew, we read, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. Matthew 28, 19. 8. The Trinity At Christ's baptism we have one of the Scripture's clearest evidence of the Trinity. After being baptized, Jesus, the Son, went up immediately from the water, and, behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending as a dove, and coming upon him, and, behold, a voice out of the heavens, the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew three sixteen through 17 In Christ's baptismal formula in the Great Commission, we again have clearly reflected the Trinity, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28.19 9. The Mountain Before Christ formally began his ministry, he endures the temptation by Satan in Matthew 4. There we read of the role of a mountain in the temptation to kingship. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Matthew 4.8 In the Great Commission, Christ speaks from a mountain with newly won royal authority. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Matthew 28.16 10. Kingdom Given In the temptation at the opening of the ministry of the prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, Satan offers to give him the kingdoms of the world. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory, and he said to him, All these things will I give you if... Matthew 4, 8-9 In the concluding Great Commission, Christ sovereignly declares that He has been given all authority, not only over the kingdoms Satan had authority over, but also in heaven. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew twenty eight eighteen, eleven 11. Worship In the temptation, Satan seeks Christ's worship of him. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Matthew 4, 8 in the Great Commission, we read that Christ receives worship, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Matthew 28:17, 12. His disciples, in Matthew 4:18, Christ calls his first disciples as his earthly ministry begins. In Matthew 28:18 through 20, he commissions his disciples as his earthly ministry ends. The Gospel of Matthew is the larger literary context of the Great Commission. In this Gospel, the sovereign kingship of Christ is initially anticipated. Matthew chapters 1 through 4, and finally secured, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20. The literary, by inspiration, and the historical, by providence, paralleling of the beginning and end well support the notion that the Great Commission is a royal commission, establishing the sovereignty of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. During Christ's ministry, the long-prophesied kingdom came near, and was gradually established in the world as it was intended. Consequently, men were pressed into it as his preaching— after he declares it judicially accomplished, all authority was given to him. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. And after his formal coronation at his ascension into heaven, we read of later Christians declaring him king and entering his kingdom. Christ today rules from the right hand of the throne of God. The geographical, temporal, and literary context of the Great Commission all move us to recognize its royal dignity, its covenantal assertion of sovereignty. Upon the securing of his kingdom, The king of heaven and earth speaks of his kingdom task as he commissions his disciples. The kingdom that had been making advances in the ministry of Christ was judicially secured by the right at the resurrection. To understand the Great Commission is anything less than the recognition of the sovereign dignity of Christ and the outline of his kingdom expansion falls short of the greatness of the Great Commission. As the first point of a covenantal transaction is the establishment of the covenant maker's sovereignty, so in the Great Commission we see Christ exhibited as the Sovereign Lord declaring His sovereignty from a mountaintop.
1: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.